0: Do you have any advice that you want to give to people who are, you know, thinking of starting their own venture?
1: Always said that I will never create my own company, right? I always said that I will Mm. never create my own company. I don't know, because I felt like as an HR person, my role was to support leaders and never be a leader myself, right? It's only in my last company when I was surrounded by a lot of ex-entrepreneurs, because my last company really valued hiring ex-entrepreneurs for their ability to do things and so on. And then I was surrounded with people that talked me into, you know what, it might be possible.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of People's Stories. I'm your host Priyanka and in this episode we are actually going to talk about two super interesting topics. But before I get into that, if you are somebody who's here for the first time, welcome to our episode. I really hope that you like the content. And if you've been somebody who's been here for a longer time, thank you so much for staying tuned. So in this episode, we are going to talk about two topics. I mentioned it earlier because I'm super excited about it. So The first one is entrepreneurship. Have you ever wondered, how do you start your own firm? What would idea creation look like? How are you going to raise funds? How are the first few years going to look like? How would you navigate them? If this is something that you've been thinking about, then stay tuned because here we are going to talk about these exact questions and you might get your exact answers. The second topic that we're going to talk about is compensation. How are salaries decided? What are the new laws and regulations going to look like? And how is it going to impact the future of works in multiple countries? If these two topics are something that you are interested in or have been seeking answers to, then stay tuned because I'm 100% sure that you're going to get some brilliant insights from this. Once again, thank you so much for being here and have fun. A very warm welcome to everybody to today's episode of People's Stories. I'm your host Priyanka and today we have, it's a very difficult name to pronounce, so I'm going to try Virgil. Ranja in the studio with us. Did I say it's, it correctly? It's nine and a half
1: out of 10, Priyanka. I think it's one of the best <laughs> ones I've ever heard, right? And I say nine and a half out of 10 because I was telling Priyanka that I usually have this mini game. I agree people when they pronounce my name, non-French speakers, of course. That was probably the best attempt I've ever had.
0: Okay, that's good. I mean, because it's 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 actually a difficult name. And for somebody who's used to English speaking, I think there are syllables that are like difficult to speak. Indeed. But then I'm super excited to have you. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for giving your time. I know you are super busy with everything. But for our audience, uh, just to give some context behind who are we talking to and what are we going to talk about? I'm speaking to the CEO of Figures. Figures is an all-in-one compensation management platform, and Virgil has been the face behind starting this whole um, company. And so we are going to talk about a lot of things, compensation-related, compensation industry-related, and generally about business. Um, so for example, how do you set up a new company? You know, How do you raise funds? How do you acquire customers? Those kind of things. But before we get into the details, Virgil, can you give a good introduction about yourself? Where are you coming from? Where are you based? What's your story? What motivated you to start uh, Figures?
1: Well, I think I have a bit of a real story, right? But in a way, everyone's story is kind of unique. But mine started, I have a computer science background, right? I have a computer science degree, but then... I was like, I don't feel like I want to do a computer science type of job. I don't want to be a developer because it feels too lonely of a job, right? And I think, I was like, I want to do something where I can use more of my social skills in a way. And I didn't know what to do. And someone was like, I think you should do HR. And I was like, you know what? I'll do HR. Like literally I jumped and I did a master's degree in HR because just someone was like, I think you should do HR. I was like, I don't know what to do. I guess I'll do HR. And so I have a master's studies in HR. And the first role I took which kind of makes kind of sense is a compensation and benefits role into a large thirty thousand employees company. Made sense because it was like mm. a mix of like clients and HR. So I did that for nearly two years. I loved it. Then I moved to another role to do something that makes also a lot of sense, HR systems implementation. So I was implementing like applicant tracking systems, payroll systems and stuff like that in a very large company, which I did for another few years. Then I was like, okay, I'm If I really want to do HR, I like to do real HR in a way, right? Like not specialist roles, even though I love those and they made a lot of sense due to my background. And I went and become like an HR advisor, HR business partner. I spent two years and a half in Australia, where many people struggle with my name as well on a day-to-day basis. And then I went on and become HR business partner and HR director in a tech company called Criteo, which was... When I joined, it was like a 1,500 employees company, which grew to more than 3,000 employees. And I was HR director for the tech team, meaning I was over Mm. HR director for product research, uh, engineering over France and the US um, for three years. Then I went on to become an HR director for a small post-series A startup named Comet. And this is when I wanted to create figures, right? I think the creation of figures come from two pain points. One I lived through my entire life, which was, I've done, I've touched many aspects of HR, and I've, I've seen all of the aspects of HR become more and more digitalized, right? I went from mm-hmm. hiring through email inboxes and shared drives for storing resumes into those nice looking applicant tracking systems, the levers, HB, and the like, and so on. Same thing with performance management. I went from paper form to those nice lattice, lip sum, and so on. Yet when it comes to compensation, I started my career doing a lot of spreadsheets and I finished my HR career doing a lot of spreadsheets. And I think you can relate to the pain, right?
0: Yes. <laughs> and I love
1: spreadsheets. You know, I actually love, uh, I, I love spreadsheets, but I think when it comes to collaborating and I, I don't think spreadsheets are not great, right? So I think they show their limits and like running compensation reviews with 700 Excel files, something I did at Quiteo was absolute nightmare. And so when I was in my last role, I had this pain of tooling, but the first immediate pain I had back then was a the lack of compensation market data. So I mm-hmm. had I was in charge of defining the compensation strategy for my company, knowing how much we should pay each of our employees, right? But I had no way to know what was a fair salary to give, right? And we're gonna talk about it maybe a bit more. But we're like, okay, we want to pay market median. But what is a market median? We had no data when it comes to what is a market median. So I reached out to a few HR directors of peers, like peers of mine of other startups are like, hey, what if I start creating like a benchmark? You give me your employee compensation data, I aggregate it and gives it back to you, an aggregated version of market data. And this was the beginning of figure, which was just, a, by the way, a, a spreadsheet, a Google sheet, right? With just the data from 20 companies, then 30, then 40, then 50. And then I was like, hey, Love what I'm doing, but am I replicating the issue I faced all my life, which is doing everything in spreadsheet? I need to turn it into a product. I found my co-founder, who was an ex-colleague uh, in my previous company, the best developer I've ever seen. He agreed to join me. We turned it into a product, and that was the beginning of figures. That's basically
0: mm-hmm. it. It basically sounds as if you identified a problem from your own workspace and you wanted to make it better. And that's how you started this particular company, which is like so logical to think about, right? Um, Exactly.
1: It's like I'd like to think I tried to create the product I wanted to have back when I was like a HR director, right? I wanted to create the data set and the product I would have dreamed to have back when I was an HR director.
0: Mm-hmm. And so when this idea came to your mind that, okay, I want to start my own company, and, and you're already saying that you started working on like a use case, exactly. and then you wanted to make it more scalable and more sustainable. And that's where the product development piece came into picture. But was there anything that was kind of um stopping you in terms of, you know, like challenges that like, Um, I don't know, registering a company, where will I start? How will I reach out to people? You know, how will I market the product? Like, what was that journey like? So
1: the administrative pain, I mean, it was okay because I took it step by step. I feel I hate it, right? I hated registering my company, doing accounting by myself, all that stuff. I hated it, right? Yet I was doable. (laughs) I think what was the biggest thing was, okay, I'm creating a product. How should I sell it? How should I price it? How much should I sell it for? Mm. How should I start mm. selling it? And that was the biggest pain. And I started Googling stuff that I never read in the past, which is, okay, how to sell a product, how to define a pricing strategy, how to define a brand, how to how to, how to to call my company and my product, yeah. which took me months to find the name figures before I found them. <laughs> it was all new problems that I started to have to face. How should I start drafting legal agreements, especially con- considering how sensitive the data I started gaining access to was, right? Like GDP are mm. concerned, so I needed to reach out to lawyers. Yeah. It's like there's a multitude, I guess, when you're starting out, there's a multitude of every day you're facing something that you've never done once in your life before.
0: Yeah. And how would you like, how would you typically kind of um, address that kind of problem? So because if you don't know, so I think one thing that I can think about is that that is that you would reach out to people and try to understand from them, you know, like that would be the easiest if people are ready to answer your questions. But is there anything else that you did that worked out in this particular case when you were working on problems not familiar with you? So-
1: I think the first one, and you're very much right, is like reaching out to people. And it's crazy how this community of like startup founders and entrepreneurs and so on is is very much driven to help people out, right? This concept of pay it forward, you reach out to mm-hmm. someone, the person going to help you, like you're going to help someone in the future. I feel like I'm spending still quite a chunk of my weeks and days with people reaching out being like hey I'm I, I spent one person hr tech founder today just founded this company was trying to reach out say hey how do i get my first clients? any advice anything i do that on a weekly basis i think people did that for me in mm. the past people were like hey i to people say hey i have no idea what i'm doing about would you spare 30 minutes with me and yeah. you know actually one of the one of those meetings was with a guy nicholas that spent 30 minutes with me, sent me a long email of recommended lists of books to read, articles to read, and so on. I was like, okay, that was that's amazing. And he was like, call me anytime or reach out anytime. Well, I was like, next week, can we spend 30 minutes again? He did that again, <laughs> 30 minutes again. And then officially, I was like, okay, do you want to become an official advisor and so on? I give you like equity, shares in my company and to make it official. But it started as just a guy who didn't ask for anything and was willing to help. And and that's crazy. I think that's the best thing about this community, is the willingness to help with no immediate return. No no one was like, okay, but you have to pay me or whatever. I was like, okay, I'll give you 13 minutes. It's crazy the amount of people yeah. that are willing to talk to you when you just reach out in a candid
0: yeah. way. I totally agree with you. I think LinkedIn has made things so much more easier, you know, just to reach out to people and, and try to strike a conversation just for people to understand. How many people did you reach out to on an average? And how many people <laughs> reverted back to you?
1: <laughs> you know what? I think I reached out to, i say, uh, 10 or 15 people. And I think I got nearly half of them. I think nearly two-thirds of them wow. replied. And I say that out of those who replied, some were like, I'm sorry, I'm too busy. Like, try back in a few months. But I think a good two-third, two-thirds were like, okay, let's schedule a time. And then... That's,
0: that's super interesting, yeah. And
1: then out of those who met me, A few of those, including Nicolas, I mentioned about was like, okay, for this specific problem you have, let me introduce you to another person. And then when you come introduced by someone else, like, hey, did you want two humans spending a bit of your time, uh, talk to Virgil about his pain, I think you can help him out. Then the wheel starts going, right? Then you get to meet another person, then you get to meet another person. And and really, the the willingness of people to help out others in this space is crazy.
0: And just um, to kind of continue on this piece as well is, um, so, I mean, you can reach out to like million of people on multiple platforms, right? So you have to also be strategic about, okay, who do I reach out to? You know, who who do you think will be able to help me? So do you have any tips or tricks there? Like how do you identify who should I reach out it's, to? It's
1: a very good question, right? So the, one, the way I went about it, I think was like, Find HR tech founders, people who've been working in HR tech and can give me domain expertise, right? I think that was one. Second thing was like pure expertise. I had a topic about the brand, right? I started out with Hmm. figures as a name, but I had a logo designed by someone very cheaply. And I was like, okay, I need to restart branding. Who can I reach out to? Who's like a domain expert? Who's like an expert on branding and marketing? So HR tech, Hmm. specific expertise on certain verticals, I think, and the third one was like, who can I reach out to who has businesses similar than mine in Dynamics? For example, my figure's business originally was very much a data business, right? Aggregating data, giving back data, which is called the data co-op type of business, meaning we gather data from company. And so the more companies we have, the more data we send back. I went out and looked mm-hmm. for businesses that were in the data co-op model, not necessarily HR. You know, in fact, someone was aggregating hotel prices information from hotels and, like, selling back. And I was like, okay, hmm. what can you tell me about specificity of the business in the data co-op model, right? So domain expertise, yeah. specific skills in one, one like, product, marketing, sales, and so on, and then other type of businesses that had a link into the business model uh, to mine.
0: Hmm. That's very interesting. And actually, actually that's a super useful, useful tip as well because – Again, as I said that, you know, you can reach out to many people and kind of get lost or also get a little frustrated because, you know, if you're not reaching out to the the right people um, and also not be limited to like your area, as you're saying, like not necessarily people from HR only, you know, just try to reach out to people who are working in that particular domain and try to get that expertise. That's super interesting. And one point on that, Um, super
1: actionable, is I found blog posts from people on the topic. And I some, to some of them, I reached out and said, hey, I saw that you wrote a blog post on this. I found it fascinating, especially this and this and this and how it applies to my business. Would you mind spending 15 yeah. minutes with me? And I make it personable. Yeah. I actually read the content from that person. I reach out with a specific question. And a few of them, like when you reach out to them in a really candid and honest way, I think it resonates. And you, you'd be surprised the amount of people that are willing to get back to you.
0: Yeah, I think this is like the cherry to the cake, because um, actually being honest and being genuinely interested are like two super critical things, because people will identify people will identify that, you know, you are just reaching out to like 10,000 people, or are you actually really reaching out to them because you want their expertise. So I think that's uh, very useful. And A last thing that's coming to my mind in terms of setting up a business and because we just went into this topic right away was um, if you have to start a business and let's say you already have an idea in your mind, you are already identifying, you know, like what area I want to create a business in, what the use case, the problem statements are, what is the first thing that you should start working on and i'm giving you a few options (laughs) because a few things are coming to my mind so the first thing is co like your team your core team so uh is the core team super important um is is the product placement product strategy that piece super important or or anything else that you can think of like what do you think you No, know,
1: i think the most important part is to talk to potential customers validate the exact problem that you're trying to solve and how you're going to solve it right i think that's the most important part i think people have an idea but that's is haven't refined it yet you need to speak to potential customers like i you just get time from you're gonna you want to sell this product to someone get this audience and like okay do proper user research meaning okay do you are you facing this problem yes okay what about i come this i come and do this and offer you this would that would Mm. you like it it's not would you like it it's like would you be willing to pay for it that's the ultimate truth because if you say would you like it a lot of people yeah yeah i'd like that it's like would you be willing to Mm. pay for this how much would you be willing to pay and before you once narrow down like what's called the willingness to pay from a certain area of people a certain niche of people Before, that's the first thing you need to do, because you can have this idea of this product, but before it's being confronted by the reality of, will you find people willing to buy for it? You can create a core team, you can have this nice product vision and strategy. You need to confront it with the actual potential customers, and then you worry about that. That's the most critical part is to talk to people, talk to as many people as you you can.
0: Mm hmm. And um, like the ways to do that would also be again through networking, right? Like reach, reaching out to exactly. uh, your network and people. Okay. But yeah, I mean, that sounds like super interesting as well, because obviously, like you can create like the best product, but then if there has to be a market for it. Or I mean, it could also be the Apple way, right? Where you, where you create a market for the product you create. I mean, it could also be that way, but I think
1: At the end of the day, you have pragmatically. To, you have to see, you have to have, uh, it's very, it sounds cold and cold-hearted, but you have to have people willing to pay for whatever you're going to be building. And the willingness to pay is super important because you can get lost in having people being like, yeah, it's a great idea. It's like, oh, I've had a few people telling me it's a great idea. And then Mm -hmm. you want out to build things like, yeah, great idea. It's just not the right time or I may use it, but you know, you need to have a list of people willing to pay for that. And then like, okay, I have a list of people. They're willing to pay pay for whatever I'm going to do. Now it's time Mm -hmm. to get on to the next step you mentioned. Yeah.
0: Yeah, All right. And um, in terms of, so let's get to to the product in general and to the industry in general that we are talking about, um, which is compensation, right? And so... um, do you think that the market right now is like, is, it, is the barrier to entry, like, is, it, is there a strong barrier to entry or do you think there's a lot of space in this market, a lot of products can be created? What's your impression?
1: Mm, so very good question. So I say in what we're doing at Figures, there's a bit two different world of what we're doing. In fact, our core business was benchmarking, right? Which is aggregating mm. data from clients and giving data back to customers aggregated quality or reliable data. And then there's the other things we're building we're our salary bands module, which allows you to create salary bands, share salary bands with managers, recruiters, and soon employees and candidates with paid transparency laws coming into effect. And then the compensation review one, which allows you to run annuals compensation reviews, right? There's a very data-driven one, which is the one I was talking about. And then there's more tooling, workflows, facilitating collaboration, and so on. Those two are different worlds. Because in the second mm-hmm. one, I think there's room. And in fact, there hasn't been enough innovation in the space. People have been screaming to stop running compensation reviews out of Excel and so on. So I think, and I know there will be more and more there's space there, and there'll be more and more people going there. Because we stay pay transparency laws, for example, the topic is going to be more and more important. The topic of collaborating yeah. on compensation informing managers, informing employees, informing candidates about salary ranges, gender pay gap, and so on, is going to become important. So I think there's room there and the barrier of entry is not that high if you build something great. Hmm. In the data part, however, it's much more complicated because to be able to give a benchmark, you need actual data. And to need data, Data. you need to convince (laughs) people to give you their data. So this is an industry in which there's a bit of a cold start problem. Meaning, let's say I started, we started out in France, right? In France, mm-hmm. I had my network to start building it and then it took off. But when we opened Germany, for example, the first German clients we went out to, they were like, okay, we're building this amazing conversation benchmarking solution, right? To give you the best insights of the market. It's so like, great, great. Show me, give me some insights. Well, turns out I don't have that much data in Germany. I need you to give me data before. It's all well. right. Okay, come back once you have data everyone wants a date and you need to break out of this circle and this is hard this is hard so the barrier of entry there is much higher
0: and i think you're already answering this question like through the conversation but basically in terms of technology because you already said that you know like tech i mean right now for example technology is almost at its boom like everything that we see is is becoming super advanced and How do you see that impacting like the compound industry in general? Like, do you see a lot of, I mean, I would love to see a lot of um, technological advancements happening in this area. And as you're saying, like data, getting the data. So that should become easier. It should become more, let's say, integrated in the system, right? Um, What's your opinion?
1: Well, I think... I'm seeing some movement. He hasn't been some movement for years. And I don't know if maybe you have an opinion into why we haven't seen that much innovation in the compensation space for a year. I, I have some theory, but I have some doubts and some reasons why I don't understand, other than this is hard <laughs> to do, right? Um, but I think we're seeing change once again because of the change of regulation. What, what I think is that we are really at the beginning of a new era when it comes to compensation because of pay transparency laws they're gonna give so much information to people. It's gonna become so much of a conversation for people who on candidates are gonna ask what is the salary range. Already showing in the US mm-hmm. that there's twice less application to roles that are not showing the salary range. This is gonna happen in Europe as mm-hmm. well. Employees will have a right to information to know if they're paid well compared to their peers or not. It's gonna start so much conversation that companies will have to adapt strengthen their compensation policy and adapt the way they talk about and collaborate about compensation. It's going to drive a lot of innovation. Regulatory changes in a lot of industry have been a key driver for innovation. It's going to be the the same for compensation.
0: Yeah, I agree. I I kind of agree with that because, I mean, uh, because it's going to become a mandate, right? It's going to become a mandate in a lot of countries, a lot of cities, states. And Eventually, it becomes like an important parameter for the companies as well because uh, because of pay transparency laws that you're talking about. I think it's going to make this area as well like it's going to uplift this particular area as well. Um, this is what I think also. And so now let's get into like even on a level a level below and let's try to address people the most interesting question that they have in their mind how are the salaries decided you know and because you have been in like this particular industry for a long time have have had experience in multiple companies what's your opinion
1: all right so i think it's a bit of a simplification right but i'll put that into two categories immature companies and more mature companies right immature companies this is how it happens let's say most companies that are just starting out and so on the truth is it's super negotiation heavy, right? Or super, you go out, apply to a company, they have like five, 10 people, they're like, what do you want? It seems like, okay to me, let's go with that, right? Lots of negotiation happening, silly mature, lots of inequality being created that way, lots of negotiation having a huge impact onto the actual outcome, and like negotiation skills, which is bad for equality and fairness. So that's like, Unstructured environment, like like day zero for companies, but some companies are still operating like that at like 40, 50, 60 employees, less and less, I think. But that's the old way of doing it, right? The old way, the historical way of, I don't want to get too philosophical, but capitalism has been, you want me to do a role for you? How much are you willing to pay? I'll tell you if that matches my need and transaction goes like that, right? In more advanced companies, the way it usually goes, and I feel bad for telling that to an expert like you, but. They're trying to. They're trying to say, okay, what are the roles that we have at the company? They try to list out most of the roles they have at the company. That's one of the things. Okay, those are the different roles. We have like developers. Is developer enough? Maybe we have back end, front end developers. We have marketing specialists. We have communications managers. They list all the roles. Second thing, which is super tricky, as you know, they try to define levels or a form of grading the role for. Usually, the role, the role of grading is to grade the actual importance or impact of the role. Sometimes it's for grading system like junior, intermediate, senior. Sometimes it's like A, B, C, D, up to H or I or J or something. It's to weight a role's importance or impact within the company. And that, in fact, creates a grid of role and seniority level. So like junior, like an engineer director for communication, so director of internal communication via Swiss Grid. And then for to know how much they're gonna pay each job, this is when usually they use market data. Says okay, I want to pay I want to know how much I should pay my director of internal communication. I'm gonna look for market data. And market data is often local, right? Because even though that's slightly changing, a director of internal communication is going to pay differently in Berlin, that they paid in London, that they pay in Barcelona. So you access to local compensation market data that will tell you, on average, or the market median a for director for internal communication in London is 120 K. Mm-hmm. And then as a company, company should have not all of them have a compensation philosophy says, Okay, I want to pay at the market median, or maybe you know, I want to attract top talents through compensation, which is not the only way to attract top talent. And I want to pay above that. So I'm going to pay 140K for that role. But sometimes, and mm-hmm. what most companies do, they were like, I won't pay everyone 140K because I want to some wiggle room to pay more or less depending on seniority, work experience, potentially diploma, certifications, and stuff like that. And therefore, I'm mm-hmm. going to create a salary range. And the salary range, you start off the 120 and says, okay, I'm going to do plus or minus 15 or 20%. So I'm going to the salary range for this role is going to be 100 to 140. And then when the candidate applies, normally, with as little negotiation as possible, which is not often the case, not always the case, let's say, the company will be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go and choose whether I pay this person more 100 or more Towards 140 based on prior experience, expected impact, seniority, and so on. And that's the way you normally get the offer out. Very often taking into consideration candidate expectation as well, which is going to drive part of the way you, you put the person within that range. But in theory, it shouldn't drive it too much, right? It should be expected impact and so on. That was a bit of yeah. a long winded answer. Was it a correct <laughs> one, though, <Priyanka? laughs>
0: Of course, I mean, uh, you are an expert actually in this area. So uh, of course, it was correct. And I mean, this is typically how it's done, right? Typically, all the parameters that you talked about are the ones that we look into usually and try to address them. But then Now, the next thing that I want to get into is the pay transparency part, because there's a lot of discussion around, you know, this being transparent and and people actually getting to know, like, how are you deciding things? And then there are a lot of differences between based on location, for example, like the U.S. is typically higher paid as compared to Germany, for example. Right. How do you how do you see this problem evolving and do you have like any possible solutions already in your mind?
1: So the problem of like pay transparency, matching candidate expectation—that area. So two things on that. First point, very right that the world is moving toward wanting to create trust with employees. One statistic on that that I love. So it's a statistic that shows that for people above a certain salary, right? We sometimes we can get confused when we talk in absolutes of what i about to say. So for some people, the amount you're getting paid is pretty damn important when you're in the lower salaries, especially with inflation and cost of living crisis, right? But above a certain salary, an analysis run by Josh Bersin, the Josh Bersin company, which is one of the top analysts out there, says that um, having a fair, what feels like a fair salary, a fair compensation, matters 30 time, 13 times more in terms of motivation than being paid slightly higher. So in a way, if mm-hmm. someone gets a higher increase, but is not sure that it's being paid fairly, is doubting that they could be paid more than another company or people are paid more within their some role in the company, won't be as motivated mm-hmm. as just reassuring the people that that person is paid fairly compared to the market, compared to others. So perception of equality and equity is more important after a certain threshold than the amount themselves. And to your second yeah. point, and we're about to push a press release on that in the next few weeks, We've proven using our own data that the more transparent a company is, the less gender pay gap there is, right? So because we ask companies mm. company that on-board figure to, to tell us how transparent they are when it comes to compensation, we've shown more transparency, less gender pay gap. So there's strong reason mm. to believe the, this will happen in a broader way with pay transparency laws upcoming.
0: Yeah. Yeah, good things coming. <laughs> good things in the in the pipeline for, for all of us in general. Um I think it has been super useful conversation, Virgil, And we got to know like so many details about comp industry and compensation in general. What's your favorite piece that you do on your regular on your regular day? Like how does your regular day look like? And what's your favorite part in that?
1: What does my regular day look like? Uh, so Actually, there's an answer in that question. So it includes dropping my daughter off to school, getting back to getting to work, running my day-to-day, and work would be like very much CEO standard role, like managing the company, talking with our investors, with our board. Um, I love working on the product. Like I'd say that what drives me the most, I think, is creating a product product that once again, I would have loved to use as an HR professional. So I think the biggest driver for me in all of this is a product, is creating the product, Right um but then i'd say to answer your question my favorite part of it is cycling i guess i love cycling it's actually cycling around i have like a long tail bike to drive my two daughters to school then i switch to my road bike to get to work back to my road bike to get back home to pick the long tail to pick off my dollars. so i that's my that's my thing cycling is for sure my thing
0: and that's how you kind of stay fit then? Or do you dedicate special time for uh, for exercise as well? I try
1: to as much as possible, but that's my backup plan is to at least I get to cycle. But <laughs> I, I try to do it at least twice uh, twice a week as well.
0: That's that's really nice. I think incorporating like that part in your regular day, I think that's kind of makes it like bare minimum that, okay, this much is definitely something that I'm going to do. And above and beyond is like always good. Um, Agree. Uh, perfect Virgil thank you so much for your time i think we had a wonderful conversation as a last piece of this of this whole episode and segment um uh, do you have any advice that you want to give to people who are you know thinking of starting their own venture um not necessarily compensation related like anything that they want to start
1: so what would you want to I think the first advice i'd say right is i didn't say that i always said that I will never create my own company, right? I always said that I will hmm. never create my own company. I don't know, because I felt like as an HR person, my role was to support leaders and never be a leader myself, right? It's only in my last company when I was surrounded by a lot of ex-entrepreneurs because my last company really valued hiring ex-entrepreneurs for their ability to do things and so on. And then I was surrounded with people that talked me into, you know what? It might be possible. But if you ask me, can I create a company in the 10 years prior? I was like, no way I can create a company. So my thing, my advice is, it's possible. Like it's really possible and it's not reserved to that a special breed of human to create a company and so on. If you really have a deep desire to do it, I think, I think you will regret not trying it out. And I think it's more and more easy in some way to be an entrepreneur, be a freelancer in a way. And if you have a strong desire to do it, I would recommend anyone doing it because, and I love my roles in the past, right? I've been blessed with of the great organization roles and managers, but I'm living my best life. And I would regret not having done that every way. So I see my first advice just don't think it's impossible, don't think it's reserved to a specific class of people, and just go and get it done.
0: Yeah. I think, yeah. That's the easiest advice that you can give to anybody. Right? just try, like, just do it and then see what, what works out. And for me personally, one more thing that I'm super interested in is, is raising funds. Do you have any advice on that piece?
1: Well, so that's an exercise in itself, right? So that's an exercise. And once again, it might be cheating, but I got to raising funds. So first of all, there was a decision on raising funds or not. You might not want to raise funds. It's not like you don't have to raise funds, right? We decided to do it because we mentioned there's a great barrier of entry. If we wanted to expand to other countries, it had to be intensive in terms of money. So we were like, we have to raise funds. But I was helped by someone who went there, and gave me the right resources, gave me the right mentorship, and told me all the right thing. You need to have a cool story to, like, to tell to investor. This is how you structure a pitch deck. Who ran me through dry runs of like pretending the investor, and then was like, okay, you're ready. I'm going to throw you to the mm-hmm. first investor. And then hmm. the thing got started because I iron on my pitch, I on what is figure, what are we trying to solve? There's very, it's a specific exercise in itself, the way you should structure it. And I think the best way to do it is to look at someone who did it, who did it successfully. There's a lot of articles online, but yeah, there's like, you need to have a specific pitch, you need to have specific documents, you need to be ready for yeah. the specific question investors will throw at you. And then you get rolling. But that's a very specific exercise, yeah.
0: right? Yeah, and I think the part that I like the most from your um, from your personal journey is, is the piece where you said that you kind of were surrounded by ex-entrepreneurs and that kind of made you look into it and be like, okay, I mean, I can also do this or maybe you got that motivation from there. So I also feel that, you know, if you are wanting to start a company or if you're wanting to get into like whatever, like whatever you want to do, Start getting in that um, in that circle. Start getting in that zone. Start reaching out to those people, and then you know things will, will start becoming easier for you because you will see people doing it and achieving stuff, and you know it will become like much less daunting <laughs> than you think it is. It and in one last thing
1: on that, right? Hundred percent aligned with what you just said. One one thing on that as well. I didn't meet that many entrepreneurs who regretted of trying out. So meeting ex-entrepreneurs mm. who failed, are like, you know what? Yes, I failed, but I learned so damn much about myself, about working, about everything. I loved it. I might do it again. And I've learned so much stuff. Yeah. It's, it's actually, <laughs> I don't regret doing it at all. So it makes you, so first of all, it makes you, it gets you in touch with people who've been there. It can give you advice. And second of all, it makes you think it's doable. And even if I fail, the lessons I will have learned by then Will be super valuable. And I think, you know what, it's been yeah. proven by studies that people who have been entrepreneurs, even if they failed, their career progression afterward, like two years of being entrepreneur is worth like twice the amount of years at a standard job. So even though every entrepreneur mm-hmm. that failed saw a career progression after being entrepreneurs. So I think
0: yeah. if
1: you have the financial stability to allow you to do it, right? Not everyone can be like, okay, I'll drop my job and create something else. If you have the financial ability to do it, even if you fail, it's going to be a career booster afterwards. The risk is very minimum.
0: I I cannot agree more. Like I personally have in my own friend circle, I have a few people who have been entrepreneurs are or are entrepreneurs right now, and the kind of thought process they have, the kind of productivity they have, the kind of problem se- problem solving mindset they have, it's like fascinating it's like so different from general uh from what you can see generally and um it's inspiring <laughs> it's inspiring to just be in that uh circle i agree perfect thank you so much Virgil. it was my pleasure to have you um and yeah i i look forward to staying in touch with you <laughs> thanks,
1: thanks a lot for having me frank it was a pleasure discussing congratulations again on staying my name in the best way i've ever heard it in the last few years <laughs> but thanks again for having me. Thank
0: you for the training that we had in the beginning. <laughs>